You're listening to Filling the Storehouse Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Stuart. And we want to walk with you on the journey to living the abundant life through faith, family, and freedom. Our goal is to refine our why while helping you find yours. Together, achieve our best and highest purpose. In the end, we'll drive each other to intentionally fill our storehouse. Hey, hey, this is Stu. And hey, did you know that as of 2016, there are more than 40.6 million people in modern day slavery? and that the business of human trafficking creates over 150 billion in profit every year. Yes, that's billion with a B. Human trafficking is a global crime that is woven into our lives more than we realize. Trafficking happens every day all over the world and it affects individuals of every age, ethnicity, and socioeconomic background. Well, our friends at Exodus Road say that We believe that justice is in the hands of the ordinary people just like you, and everyone has a role to play in bringing freedom to traffic sons and daughters around the world. And so do we at Storehouse 310 Ventures. This has become a passion of ours to support Exodus Road and fight this hideous crime. So we've created the Storehouse Giving Fund. It's a donor advised fund, and uh, we hope that us ordinary people can all come together and fight this ridiculous, hideous crime. So join us in the fight against human trafficking. I've put a link in the show notes of this podcast episode to our giving fund. And we would greatly appreciate it if you helped us and just donated a little bit. Seriously, everything, even the smallest amounts count. So go enjoy this episode and go to that link in our show notes and support us and support Exodus Road. Go fill your storehouse. See you. All right. Um, this is Filling the Storehouse Podcast, and I am incredibly excited about our conversation today with Laura Parker. But before we get into that, Laura, yesterday, David was over at my house, and we were had all the kids. We were in the backyard jumping on the trampoline, and I was in there with the kids, you know, lightly kind of bouncing them and double bouncing them. And David was like, Hey, do you want me to come in and I'll jump the kids to like really jump the kids? I was like, no, because you'll go launching them like over the net. You'll of, break an arm. Yeah, you'll, you will break something. <laughs> yeah. And uh, to be so, fair, I've launched hundreds of kids on hundreds of occasions. Uh-huh. And there have been, there's only been minor neck strains, <laughs> no broken, but that's like, their fault. The I whiplash. Say, don't don't uh don't embrace you know don't don't absorb the the uh, jump in Uh your knees or else it'll make your neck kind of do some weird things so they when they do that they didn't follow instructions and uh and uh that's 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 how it goes man that's on warning warning to all parents don't put your kid in the trampoline with david gutierrez warning to all parents if you don't want your kids to have like the time of their life and have an amazing time then then don't let them come over to my house you're right uh laura it's great to see you um great to have you on it's been a while because i know you've been incredibly busy uh you know going over to like all kinds of places all over the world and and doing amazing stuff and taking over as the ceo of the exodus road so we're going to get into all of that but um first before we kind of get into a a ton of information if you could just kind of give us a little bit of backstory about uh who you are you know we've had your husband matt on a couple times now um, but just give us a little brief background about who you are and, and what you're doing. 
Yeah. So my name is Laura Parker and I live in Colorado Springs and I'm the co-founder of the Exodus Road, which is a nonprofit fighting human trafficking. And I'm also a mom. I have three kids. Uh, they are, gosh, remember their ages, 14, almost 14. No. Oh my gosh. I literally cannot remember my children's ages. No. Okay. I got it. 15, 17, and 19. Um, so yeah, two girls and a boy and yeah, I'm full-time working mom. Um, also get to travel and we have been fighting human trafficking for about a decade now. Yeah. You know, and, and one, uh, one thing that we were talking about beforehand. So when Stu and I were looking at different organizations to support, you know, one of the things we do, we like to do is, is, uh, some pretty extensive research and then, uh, usually culminates in not usually it always culminates in a conversation with the founders or, you know, just to, just to kind of get to know folks. And I'll tell you when I was looking through, um, I don't even remember why a couple of years ago, I don't remember why human trafficking had really, uh, crept up so high on my list, but it just was such, it was something that, I think there was awareness of, especially being military guys, but, um, you know, it just was something that was, uh, you know, that, that was so powerful and important to us. And so I found the Exodus road somehow, and you have a book, an ebook that you can download. And, and I'm like, well, what better way to kind of find out about this organization? And so I read your book and, uh, I think immediately shot it to Stu, printed it out, you know, passed it around my office and, it was so impactful for me. And that's really what drove us to reach out to you guys was, was had nothing to do with uh, Matt or any of the relationship that we had had formed after it was all about your book and, and just the impact. And what was so, it, it was just so intriguing to me was the perspective that you brought to it as the, as the, you know, one, a supportive wife, but a partner in these things, but, but just by the nature of the business, Matt being a man was a more likely individual to go do, go, you know, go buy sex basically. Right. I mean, that's the demographic. And, and so if you don't mind just talking a little bit about, you know, the founding and, and the book and uh, cause I'll tell you if, for those of our listeners that haven't read it, it's quick read, super good. I couldn't put it. I think I sat down and read it in one sitting and it's on the website. I'm assuming it's still there. You just download it and, and uh, get after that's it. Great. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, definitely when I got married, when I was uh, just turned 21, I never envisioned that my husband would be a undercover <laughs> operative into the sex trade in Thailand. <laughs> that was not part of that the, wasn't part of the, that, that wasn't, wasn't part of the, of the deal. Oh, yeah, weird. that was okay. not part of the vision. <laughs> um, you know, we grew up in uh, great families, um, conservative Christian families, and we were just young and in love, you know, um, still are in love. Matt was my high school prom date. Um, we went to senior prom together. So we really grew up together and we really had built a pretty fantastic life life for ourselves. We were actually in Woodland park, Colorado. Matt was a youth pastor and three small kids. They were uh, three, five, and seven. And I think for the first time in my life, I had really felt settled and happy and full and content. And then he comes home one day and says, Hey, I think that we need to move to Thailand for two years, which was like a complete curveball to me. And, um, I really had to wrestle with that because I really didn't want to go. He had gotten offered a position to run a children's home for, um, impoverished girls from the Hill tribe regions of Northern Thailand. And so it was a two-year commitment. 
And I remember really, really struggling with the idea of it again, because I was so comfortable where I was. And my focus at that point in my life was just it, not just, but it was the three kids and the three precious little people I had at home, um, as a stay at home mom and my world was them. And I couldn't get past thinking about what would happen to them if we moved them away from their friends and their, their little preschools and their church. Um, but through a series of circumstances, you know, God just kept tugging them on my heart and we ended up going and, um, landed in Northern Thailand to work at this children's home. And it was, disaster from the beginning. I think a lot of people think, you know, like when you, when you do something hard and you feel like you're in obedience, things will work out. And it's been my experience that a lot of times it doesn't work out how you expect it to. And it's actually not easier than you think it's harder than you think. And that was our experience. I mean, that first year there were rats in our kitchen. My son, who was five years old at the time, we had some friends visiting us and he showed up at the top of the stairs with a suitcase packed as they were, I'm serious, as they were leaving to go back home to America. And he said, please, can they take me with them? Wow. You guys can pick me up when you're done here. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That is rough. That's hard. (laughs) So it was rough, hard, 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 hard. But eventually we got our feet under us a little bit. And about after about a year, Matt went to this, uh, this meeting that had all of these nonprofits that were interested in, uh, counter human trafficking work. And honestly, we didn't really know a lot about human trafficking as an issue. We had Googled it and we had seen the movie taken. And that was about where the, our knowledge, our knowledge lay. And so he went to this meeting and there were multiple organizations there. And at this, this meeting, they split up organizations between, prevention and intervention and aftercare. So kind of the three, three major focuses of counter-trafficking work. And he said, it was like the parting of the Red Sea, like half went to prevention and the other half went to aftercare and no one went to intervention. And so he stepped into that and that relationship was what connected him to a, um, a Thai police officer who is in charge of counter human trafficking cases. And then we started learning that the real need that we were seeing right in our community was for undercover investigations into the sex trade. So, yeah, yeah, so that's the kind of the beginning of the story. Um, And, and, you know, go ahead. Yeah. So as, as the wife, uh, you know, for, for Matt coming home and saying, Hey, Laura, what do you think about me? you know, starting doing, you know, undercover investigations and going into brothels and, you know, hiring, hiring under, you know, underage girls for sex. Like, I mean, how, how does that come off? <laughs> like, yeah. What? Yeah. You know, it, it, it was so interesting because I think my journey as a mom was still my, my journey as a mom, which caused me at the beginning to want to stay in the same place. It, it was that same motivation thinking of my own kids that actually caused me to say yes to this work, because I, I kept thinking, you know, the closer and closer I got to the reality of it, I kept thinking, what if it were my own kids? Um, you know, what if it were Kelty, Cade or Ava, and we had gotten tricked and our 
kids were somewhere in the middle of Bangkok being forced to, to service customers 10 times a day and had no means of escape and no means of getting back home to us. Would I not want someone to figure it out? Would I not want some wife to, even though she didn't know it was coming and what it would cost her marriage, would I, I want her to be brave enough to step into that uh, reality? And would I want my husband to be brave enough to step into that reality if it were our own kids? And so, yeah, so we, yeah, so I said, yes. And I think, um, you know, from the very beginning, one of the things that we felt really strongly about was that, that it, it wouldn't be fair for me as a wife to send him into battle, so to speak. And then when he comes home and he's carrying the burden or the, the trauma of that for me to somehow punish him for, for the results of, of, of what he had to carry. So at the very beginning, we said, Hey, I'm going to watch all of your undercover footage. He started wearing body worn cameras. And so I would wear, I would watch every single inside of a brothel. I would listen to him ask for sex for minors. Um, and I think for me, that was really important because it allowed us to stay connected in the work instead of this division where he was carrying this heavy, heavy trauma and then being invited into shame for what he saw or, um, you know, the places that he was in. And so I think that was, that was really pretty critical for us in the early days. And even now too, like the amount of there, there were together even in the work, um, which is, which has really, I think been pretty critical to our being able to do this for 10 years. Yeah, I, I love that. It's such a, an amazing uh, way to look at, you know, what you guys are doing. And then before we hit record, you were kind of telling us about, you know, some, some of the challenges that you've been through. Now, you guys have been doing this for like 10 years now, fighting human trafficking and, um, you know, all, all God-driven and, but not always easy, right? And there's a lot that you've kind of said that you've learned through, through following Christ, through, through saying, yes, Lord, use me but it's not going to be easy. And I'm curious kind of what, what are some of those lessons learned that you've kind of gone through in the last 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. I think I set out thinking that with this false idea that there's this formula for following God. And it's that if you follow and do the right thing and sacrifice, then things will work out and you'll get to see miracles. (laughs) And in my mind, the miracle was um, having finances rain on us and having people like us and having cases work out and, and being in front of a cheering crowd that was so proud of the hard work we were doing. And in my experience, that just hasn't been the case that it's not that I haven't seen miracles. It's that I haven't seen the kind of miracles that are the logical ones that I wanted to see, you know, the kind that that is the feeding of the 5,000 or the walking on the water. It's been these miracles that have been a lot more internal and a lot more under the surface. Um, and I think in so many ways, um, God has rescued me from myself and he has shown me what it means to trust. It's like, I wanted the miracle of, quick financial and organizational success, but the miracle that actually 
am experiencing is this dependency for every day for God to provide. And the miracle that I wanted was, you know, to be a, a social media famous person that could, that could like point people to justice, but I, I operate in relative anonymity. And I think God did that on purpose because he actually, the actual miracle is that he rescued me from my own ego. And so I think, I think he has taught me more about himself and about myself through things not working out than through things being easy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so insightful. You know, I, oftentimes we, I feel like in, in my faith as well that I, you know, we, we put God in this box, right? And this expectation of this human mind that can't even conceive like an ant conceiving of the internet as uh, Rick Warren always likes to say, but but the the idea that we even understand what those blessings are, what they look like, what they what they what we have in store, and, and I'm you know it, it always makes me wonder how much I'm missing out on on God's blessings by not stepping out in faith because something wasn't necessarily the way that I and my infinite wisdom thought that it would turn out and, and look like, and I, and I think that's a beautiful way to uh, frame faith because I think there's a lot of people you know there's even people that we've talked to recently having that there's some faith struggle because it's just the expectations may be a certain place or our uh, desired outcome may be a certain place. And, and it's just not how God works. Right. I mean, Jesus, uh, you know, you look at his ministry and, and most people hated him and he died on a cross. Like that's not really the culmination of, uh, you know, what you'd expect. Success story. Yeah. Success story. Right. He, but wasn't, then, he wasn't super popular on Instagram. Right. No, he wasn't super no. popular on Instagram uh, and he didn't have a ton of followers uh, at that point. But, but I think you guys are making generational impact. Right. And I think the miracles are also things that you'll never see. It's a miracle in that, that, that child that is lost in the middle of Bangkok that you described that does get saved and the rest of their life is a miracle. And, and that's not something that, you, you know, you guys are, are have to focus on, on saving more and, and that for that one little girl or boy, um, their life is now has been given back and, and there's a miracle in that. And I think that's so powerful. Um, I, I'm curious as you were talking about it, you know, I'd like to hear more about your kids um, you know, as a father of three as well, I have uh, one one daughter and and two sons. We love to travel, and and now with this awareness of human trafficking, like it's just a different level. We'll talk about awareness later because I think people that's a big problem. But um, but I I oftentimes I go down these you know mental paths of like, oh my gosh, what if you know just right in front of my house, like what if? And, and I'm just curious how your kids in this environment, how you've seen them grow and the blessings that you've seen, because their life has been very unique. They have uh, parents that are involved. I mean, you guys are heroes, right? And, and to be kids of that, I think is very interesting. So if you don't mind if sharing a little bit about just how their childhood and up to this point now and, and how that's been an impact on their lives. Yeah, well, I definitely would not call us heroes, um, but I will say that for our kids, you know, I think I, I tell them all the time, anything of value or anything worth doing is going to cost. And I, I think, you know, we've made a lot of mistakes as we've raised them in this work. I think we have uh, not shielded them enough, honestly, from from some of the struggle and some of the heartbreak that we've been called to walk. I think uniquely because the co-founders are married, it, it was really difficult to not talk about 
you know, the, the, the latest obstacle or the latest betrayal or the latest struggle over the dinner table. And that I think from a young age brought them into the kind of the heartbreak sometimes of, of trying to figure out God's next best step. However, I do think it's really built their resilience and they are really strong and they have this perspective of the world that is, that is that, you know, our life and our privilege and the resources that we have, you're, you're not supposed to keep those. And, um, the, the, the point of it is to give it away for the most vulnerable. The point of it is to, to lay down your life. And I think in that way, it's been really, really good. I think they also have an awareness of other cultures. They have an awareness of people on the margins. They have a great depth. All three of them have a great depth of compassion for the outsider. And I think that's because they grew up hearing about those that were on the margins and those that were on the, on the outside. I will say as well that we do have a therapy fund for each of them that when they graduate, <laughs> they can leverage to, <laughs> uh, <laughs> to talk through all of the issues that yeah. we unintentionally handed them. <laughs> and just out of curiosity, just as follow on, um, are they interested in pursuing the the family business or are they looking to, you know, cause your kids are now getting to college age and, and, and making those decisions. So just curious what they're looking at. Yeah. You know, we, we always kind of uh, talk about that. Some, I do have one daughter that is interested in humanitarian work. Really both daughters are interested in humanitarian work. I, I would say all my kids in some way are interested in serving others, but they definitely have different paths. Um, we have one daughter that has joked and, and said that she wants to be an investigator, but our, our rule is organizationally, you can't be an investigator until you're 30 years old. So she's got, she's got some time <laughs> to wait. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I think, you know, in whatever space it is, I think they all have hearts to impact change and, I think have pretty big, big ideas of, of what is possible when, when just ordinary people step in and try to try to throw all their energy into, into solving a problem. So you've recently taken over CEO and you have a lot of new stuff um, going on. And, and I want to get into that in a second, but um, you know, on the similar lines, like I, I would assume that it is incredibly hard to be a leader uh, in a nonprofit organization right now, specifically in human trafficking. And I'm curious what kind of struggles that you guys have gone through lately. Yeah, it's really tough. I think, you know, any, any nonprofit leader, it just has, um, remarkable grit, I think, because, you know, with a business, you're, you're raising money and you're delivering a product and in nonprofit work, you are, you are just selling the product of the good work. And that is really difficult, especially in a time of COVID where people are, are struggling financially anyway. Mm -hmm. And then I think on the other side, not only are you, not only are you operating a, a business that does fundraising and donor care 
and transparency and systems on that side, but then you're also developing internationally very complex systems to actually implement and do the work. (laughs) And a lot of organizations either do one or the other, you know, a lot of organizations in the States, especially are essentially, they, they focus on the first part and they do, they raise the money and then they, they have partners that do the implementation. And for us, we are, we do both. And so it's just incredibly complex. It's, it's complex to operate internationally in corrupt environments in one of the most riskiest fields imaginable. And then on this side of the house, the fundraising donor side of the house, it's complex to be able to communicate that work when you're protecting survivors, you're protecting dignity, you have security issues. And then you're also battling just a general lack of awareness in in the world about what human trafficking is and how serious of a crime it is and how pervasive it is. So you have to not only educate people on what the problem is, with very limited ability to actually share details, oftentimes, (laughs) that you also have to motivate and inspire them to to care about people on the margins and donate in a way that they're not getting a a product. And then on the other side of the house, you're having to to do face impossible odds day in and day out and face incredible risk. So like on both sides, we're facing we're facing just where we're having to climb pretty big hills <laughs> all around. Yeah. And you guys are, you know, you alluded to it, but some, some folks raise money and then they partner others, you know, uh, they will focus on, uh, I think you mentioned earlier, that there's a party in the red seas. There's the aftercare, there's the awareness, the intervention, all those things, but you guys are, are pretty much a, a one-stop shop, right? So if, if you could talk about, um, you know, cause I know you guys have had some significant, significant advancements in, in, uh, particularly, well, I don't want to say particularly aftercare cause you guys are, you guys are engaged in every level of it, but if you could just give us some, some, some of the, uh, some updates on the new stuff that you guys are really focused on and, and trying to build out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for the first eight years, we were pretty laser focused on intervention. How do we train and equip national investigators to assist police in finding current victims of trafficking, gathering the evidence that's needed so that we can impact survivor rescues and arrests. So that was kind of our, our key area of focus, but COVID because it grounded all of us for a while, it, it gave us an opportunity to begin to think outside of the box. And one of the things that came out of that was this concept around training. And it was this idea of, okay, we have eight years of experience on the front lines in corrupted environments, gathering intel that actually works. How do we leverage that training and equip other law enforcement agencies for how to do this work? And so this year we've launched Traffic Watch Academy in Brazil, which is set to train over 20,000 law enforcement officers throughout the country of Brazil about how to fight human trafficking crime. So that's super exciting. It's free. It's all digital. And most of the modules are actually taught by Brazilian experts. So that's really exciting too, that we're centering Brazilian experts to impact their own people. So that's exciting. And then on the other side of the house, we were actually able to launch last year, our first dedicated aftercare shelter. 
So it's called Freedom Home. It's in Thailand and it is, it's serving, it's both a safe house and a mentorship program that serves adult survivors and also um, welcomes their children. And so that's been really exciting to watch take off. Um, we have multiple clients there now, and we have their sweet little children running around there now. And that program, it, it has a trauma-informed counseling, life skills classes, and then it also has really exciting tracks for building their own sustainability and their own um, employment, their own careers, which is which is really what survivors need. They they need the trauma-informed therapy, but they also need a way to make successful livings for themselves and for their families. And so we do entrepreneurship training um, and, and job skills training to ensure that that happens. So, yeah, so that's exciting. So, so now we, we do invest in training intervention and then the aftercare piece of it, but it really is such a massive problem. I mean, 40 million modern day slaves, it's going to take uh a million Exodus roads um, and, and a million different organizations attacking this problem from all angles and partnership and collaboration is really, really critical to, it is mission critical for sure in this issue. And you guys are moving into more countries as well, correct? Yeah, we actually just uh, uh, launched into the Philippines. So we have had multiple cases there already in the Philippines, which is super exciting. And then we also have a, a volunteer team that is standing up um, some, some OSINT services for us to fight trafficking right here in the U.S., which we're also really excited about getting that off the ground this year. Wow, that's awesome. And you guys are doing uh, more intelligence now, too, on, on getting that front going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it really is true that you cannot be about this work if you are not paying attention to what's happening online. I think COVID just, I mean, all the statistics uh, underscore that, that, that COVID just increased that an already really significant problem. And so, you know, we've, we've been trying to solve this problem around how do we impact change here in the U.S. because trafficking does happen right here in the United States. A lot of times people think it, it only happens in third world countries, but it happens right here in our own backyards. And a lot of times it happens online or there are, there's evidence that can be gathered online. And so, yeah, we're really thankful this year. We have a, a team of volunteers that's coming alongside us and is going to help us with some open source intelligent, uh, intelligence, some um, data, data scraping, which will be exciting. And then, um, and then we also have a great partnership with a, a company out of Israel called Celebrite, which we deploy mostly internationally, but we, we come alongside and gift, uh, technology to get information from trafficker cell phones with police. So those are, those are two kind of the, of the ways that we're trying to employ tech in this space to try to stay ahead of the curve. So literally this morning while taking my, my daughter to school, she's seven and um, we have a neighbor who's 11 and then David and his kids were over yesterday. And, and my daughter who's seven asked if she could have a phone. And I was like, no, honey, you can't have a phone yet. I'm sorry. And she was like really disappointed. Like she wants a phone because she sees, you know, her, her older, you know, cousins and neighbors and having, having phones. And, and I'm trying to explain to her like in a seven-year-old way, like, well, there's, there's dangers 
by having a phone and there's, you know, people on the internet and social media. And, and I'm trying to like tailor my conversation to a seven-year-old and I was struggling. Like I was having a hard time trying to tell my daughter why she can't have a phone right now at the age of seven. And I'm curious, um, you know, how, do you have any recommendations of one for like for me and, and like, how, how do we one be aware? How do we spread this word and how do we teach our children dangers now that they're, I mean, I don't know, like, I don't think there were these dangers 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And I'm, I'm honestly really nervous about growing my child up in a, an environment that we're in now. And I, I have a feeling it's just going to get worse. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm curious. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it is, it is a growing concern for sure. And I think you're smart not to give your seven-year-olds a phone with internet access. Yeah. Um, we have actually a whole landing page with a whole list of resources for parents about digital safety for their kids. So I can send you that um, after we talk. And it's, there are a lot of tools that you can use as, as parents and as your kids do get phones or do get online. We have one at our house that shuts down all the wife, all the Wi-Fi access after a certain amount of time. And it's usually in the middle of, you know, a, a battle on the video game. And we always hear, no, you know, right in the middle. Right. To cut, cut off That's right awesome. when he yeah. was going to win the whatever battle or sure. whatever. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's, it's really important and also exhausting and overwhelming as a parent, because, mm-hmm. you know, our parents didn't have to, they didn't have to think about um, that. They didn't have to think about these kind of dangers. Right. Yeah. And, and it's so complicated, but there are good tools out there but it takes some work and intentionality to set it up and just to draw the line. I would say that it's a lot easier to have stricter rules at the beginning. It's really hard to put the cat back in the bag. Right. Um, so that was one of the things that we tried to do is just stall, 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 stall as much as possible to let them get social media or to let them get phones or to let them, because, um, because it's, it's really hard to, control that, you know, we, we're putting in our kids' hands, you know, they don't have the, they don't have the emotional intelligence. They don't have the discipline. They don't have the the worldly knowledge to, to understand the digital world and what can come at them. And so we really have to step in and protect them of that. But I would say, I would say resources. And, and then the other thing I would say is one of the things we've done with our kids is we've just had really awkward conversations all the time and (laughs) it's just terrible, you know, phone checks and let me read your texts. And this is, you know, this is probably not legit, et cetera, et cetera. Just having all these awkward conversations around what they're seeing and what they're, what they're posting and all of that stuff. But I think that's parents have to be courageous to step into that because it's a whole new wild west out there for sure. And I think that's, I think that a large part of the problem is not just what the kids are seeing, what they're exposed, but it's the fact that parents have no clue. The parents aren't, whether it's a, you know, there, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we wouldn't, but I think a lot of it is engagement. And I look at, you know, uh, it's still, it's shocking to me that you know, I still have conversations and maybe it shouldn't be shocking, but I, I, I had a conversation the other day with somebody when we were talking about Exodus road and, and the, this, this particular individual friend of mine was like, I, I just, I didn't even know that stuff happened. I'm like, man, there's 40 million slaves 
modern day slaves and, and people are still, and people with kids are still unaware that there are people, you know, maybe in our neighborhoods trying to exploit their children. And, and I think it's such a sad thing. And, and, you know, I'm kind of curious if there's any data out there to show, like, how could we get, would it be, would it just be in a, uh, an expansion of awareness that could make a significant impact on, on this problem? Like, is it just, is it that easy? Um, I know there's a lot of, you know, a darkness and there's a lot of evil and, and a lot of, uh, you know, criminal activity. And these criminals are, are sophisticated, a lot of them, but would just simple awareness and, and, and taking the time to be, uh, you know, maybe just take an interest would that curtail this activity quite a bit. It really would. I think people can't behave differently if they don't know that a problem exists. Right. And I think the problem with, with human trafficking and sex trafficking specifically and sexual exploitation of minors is it, it feels very dark and it feels very scary. And I think there's so much in our culture that has a lot of shame around, um, anything to do with sex, right. That a lot of times people just, they just don't want to step towards the issue. They don't want to know about it. They feel like it's too dark. It's too scary. It's too traumatic. It might press on, on old wounds of exploitation they've experienced themselves or, um, mistakes that maybe they have made in the past. And so they just don't want to have the conversation. And I think that, you know, things grow in the dark, right. And things grow in the dark, bad things grow in the dark. And I think that, that that's one of the major issues to fighting this particular social justice issue. And then I think on the other side, you know, um, I think it's a, it's about 60% of those that are victims of human trafficking are actually enforced labor. And when you start really looking at behavior that needs to change to impact that, it means that people have to start buying fair trade. They have to have to start demanding that things be ethically sourced. And, and that's an, that is a choice that, that consumers have to make that touches close to home, right? Because it's not just giving 20 bucks at the end of the year on giving Tuesday. It's, oh, wait, I can't shop at this place anymore, or I can't buy that, that food anymore. We, we talked to, uh, to fishermen in Thailand who were victims of forced labor on shrimping boats. And these men were literally kidnapped and they were put on boats out to sea and they were forced to work 16 to 20 hours a day under horrible conditions, massive abuse. Uh, One gentleman told us of his friend that died and they just threw his body overboard. Another gentleman told us of his friend that died and they put, because he was trying to get away and get off the boat and they put his body in the freezer so that the other men would have to look at it and be reminded that they better not try to escape. And I, I ask, I ask the, the guy that we were interviewing, I said, well, if you could say one thing to American consumers, what would you want them to know about, about human trafficking or about your experience? And they were fishing. Um, they were shrimp fishermen. And he said, don't buy shrimp because more than likely we were the ones that sourced it. And it, it's just wow. like, when you know that all of a sudden it starts to 
starts to mess with your life. Right. (laughs) And, and that's difficult. And so I think there's a lot of that too going on. People know that, or, or maybe even at a subconscious level, they know that if they, if they know about it, then they're going to have to do something about it. And that feels a bit painful. Well, how, how do, like, how, how does David and Stu know more about, you know, what, what came from human trafficking, social, you know, worker trafficking? Like, how, how do we find out about that stuff? Well, we actually have a, uh, we have a basic course called Traffic Watch Academy US that we just launched several months ago. That's a two-part series. The It's all free. It's, it's digital. It'll take you about 30 minutes to complete. And it would be great for your teenagers to take as well. I would suggest parents preview it, but it has lots of stories. You'll even hear a story from one of those fishermen that I just mentioned. And um, that's a great way to start. You know, the first, the first 15 minute module is on global human trafficking. It talks about statistics and who's affected. And then the second 15 minute module is all about trafficking in the United States and what to do if you spot it and what to look for in your community and who to call. And it gives you practical action steps for what to do right now today to start making an impact. So I would definitely suggest that resource. That's awesome. So you recently came back from, from India and I'm curious just kind of what, what you were doing on that trip. Preston jumped on right before your creative director and I was giving him some high fives for all the amazing photos and video that he took. How'd that trip go? What would you guys do over there? Yeah, it was really, really good. You know, it was the first time that we had gotten to see our India team in about three years because of COVID. And so the primary point was just to check in on them and connect um, as leaders and encourage them and see how they were doing, how they were faring, you know, COVID definitely obviously hit hard in the States, but in places like India, it just, um, it decimated, decimated a lot. And so, so it was really good. Our primary focus was just to be there and, and be with, with them, especially our country director and our social worker that's there. But then secondarily, we did, um, some marketing, content creation. And it was really exciting. And one of the things that we're moving away from as an organization is using actual footage from of survivors from our rescue operations to protect survivor dignity. But to do that, it means we have to gather, we have to invest in gathering a lot more representative footage. And so that was one of our big tasks there was going and gathering more representative footage so that we could continue to storytell and, and share about what's happening there in India. You know, in, in India, uh, the problem is just overwhelming. There are about 8 million that are enslaved just in that country alone. And a lot of times girls will be tricked, um, or taken or kidnapped or deceived or sold by family members, um, as young as 12 and 13 years old. And, uh, we actually had our, our country director was telling us about some cases that he had worked where, where they're younger girls and they have to service 30 to 40 clients a day, which is just horrific. Like it's hard to wrap your mind around. Um, so they're, they're facing incredible odds, but, but, you know, one time I asked him, I said, how do you, how do you keep doing this work? It just feels like, it feels like too much. And he said, well, yes, there's a lot of darkness, but light always wins. Right. (laughs) 
Like, yes. like a question. There's right. Like a question. Like, yeah. It was like, right? uh, why are you even, <laughs> well, yeah, like, why are you asking me this? Of course, light always wins. So anyway, um, he, he calls his work. He says, we have to snatch them from the fire. So that's what he calls mm. his work with police, um, snatching survivors from the fire. So yeah, so it was, it was a, a hard trip in some ways, but a really good trip in, in a lot of ways too. Yeah, you know, and I was going to ask you something different, but what you just said reminded me of a conversation when we went and visited you guys, um, you know, a few months ago. And one thing that I think is is so you mentioned it from, um, you know, the the sense of over being overwhelmed when you consider trying to be more aware, right, and how your life changes. But but for you guys in the line of business that you're in, it's not it's not that your life has changed. You're completely aware. So how how do you hold on to those victories and the light in the sea of darkness that it just seems so overwhelming. Like when I, when we, when we think about supporting you guys and, you know, we, the, the desires that we have, the giving desires, and even, you know, Matt, Matt's been telling us we need to get out there and, and uh, go knock on some doors and stuff. So we're, we're all about it. But, but even with that stuff, like it, uh, well, it just hold on seems, a second. My wife is not all about it. I, I still have some right. uh, convincing no, no. to do on that. We're, on you and I are all about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah to be yeah. clear, you and yeah. I are all about it. But uh, um, but I, I, I'm just curious, how do you, like, how do you pull the hope and the, the joy and the miracles and all the goodness out of just such a, I mean, it is so overwhelming. Yeah. It's depressing. I mean, it, it is yeah. so, yeah, it is overwhelming. It is depressing. I, I mean, I will be honest. There's, there is probably not one week in the course of 10 years that I have not wanted to quit or Matt has not wanted to quit like every single week. Like this is too hard. <laughs> this is, we are bleeding out. This organization is bleeding out for these survivors that will never meet and case get tipped off or funding is hard or curveballs happen. And so I, I just, I'm reiterating your point. It is really hard. The issue itself is dark and has such spiritual weight, but then the work is hard and slow going. And I think, you know, for me, it, it really has come down to my own spiritual journey and my own spiritual health. I think, you know, in the first, the first probably eight years, there was a real unhealthy super gluing of my identity with the identity of the Exodus road. And when people liked the Exodus road or the Exodus road was going well, then my identity was, was doing well. And if the opposite happened, then that was true too. And I think it was, it's really hard to stay in a place of hope um, when that's the mentality, when it's just results driven, right. And if in the last two or three years, I've really done a lot of hard soul work in what does it mean to look under the surface and under the surface at the real work that's being done and celebrating the small victories, you know, celebrating the fact that, um, wow, only one case was successful, but this team presented 15 cases. That's amazing. You know, I mean, you just, you have to train your eyes 
to, to scan the field and look for the little sprouts of growth and just throw a party for every single one of those, <laughs> because you have this understanding of how, how much farming and how much work has to go into every little seed that's growing. But I think for me personally, when I really started to unsuper glue, unattach my own identity with the success or failing from other people's opinions of the work itself, it, it like, it opened the door for me to be a lot more hopeful regardless of the circumstances, right? It's, it's, um, you know, we, we till the field, we pull the weeds, we plant the seeds, but only God can make it grow. Right. And, and remembering that, (laughs) remembering that he's the one that makes it grow and he's the one that controls the rain. And he's the one ultimately that loves these vulnerable children more than I can even comprehend Mm. that, that is the hope underneath it. I think that's so powerful, especially you talk about identity. That's something that, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about lately with, you know, even what's our identity as a father, as a husband, as a friend, as, as um, you know, as a military member coming out of the military, like, who are we, what, where do you attach this importance? And I just think it's, I think that was, I think you put that beautifully and, and, and there's also a sense of responsibility, right? There's a, that I, I think it's a, a, a very special place that I'm trying to get to in my faith of, of recognizing that my responsibility is, you know, if I'm serving God and I'm, you know, talking to somebody about this the other day, they're like, I don't want to give to that person on the side of the street because I just, you know, I don't know what they're going to do with it. And there was this news story and they went and got a Mercedes. I'm like, yeah, but that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to honor God and do what you're going to do. Your gift is in that your, your treasure in heaven is in that. And, and ultimately, you know, our responsibility lies there. And, And I think, that's what I also love about it. The awareness piece is we all have a responsibility to be aware of this. I mean, at the end of the day, we have a responsibility and, and whether you want to acknowledge it or not, there is somebody that's going to try to exploit your child. Like, that's just how I look at it. I, there's just people that are going to see and whether it's something in them or whatever, that they're going to want to exploit your family or child. And, and not that you walk around in fear, but it's just to, to close your eyes to that reality is, is, is a very willful act in and of itself. And I think it's, um, you know, just so, super important. And, and I want to ask you one last, last question that's, that just kind of popped in my head, but how, when, when people are becoming aware, how, how is, how should you best vet an organization like Exodus road or others? Cause there's, there's some other organizations that, that have gotten, you know, been in the news and, and they were pretty big and, and they're just doing things that, that uh, they're getting a lot of money, but maybe not using that the, the, the best way. And I'm just curious how, how should one, how should someone like us vet organizations that we give to? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's really, really hard because there it's, it's really hard, right. To look and see what's really happening beneath the surface, especially if the work is international. And so I would say if the work is international, Definitely look towards if the organization is centering and empowering national voices of that community and national leaders, because if they're not, then the ability for that good work to sustain over the long term is probably not very high. So I would say that would be one thing. Look for if they're doing international work, what is the place in in leadership and, and how does the, you know, how does the Western marketing team treat and center voices of national leaders. I think that's really important. 
I think obviously just on a practical level, looking at people's finances is really important, right? Finances always tell the story. And so make sure that the, the, the group you're vetting is, you know, has um, audited financials from third parties and has public 990s posted and public audits posted and has all of the highest ratings on all the charity navigator sites and all of that stuff. That's really important too. Um, and then I think too, just making sure that organizations have really clear visions and that the stories or the metrics or the impact that they're sharing online or raising money on, that that matches what their stated vision is. Because I think a lot of times people can get a little bit off track because there's so much good to do in the world. And there's so many kind of sexy topics or, or hot button fundraising topics. And people kind of jump on different bandwagons just to capture whatever the social media flavor is of the day. And I think it's just really important to make sure there's consistency there. Um, and then I think the next thing is just talking to people who are in the organization um, at all levels, not just the leaders, but also, you know, the, the person that answers the phone right off the bat, you know, do they, what do they have to say about the organization, the organization's work? I think you, you learn a lot from an organization's culture and efficacy based on, on what the people within the, within that ecosystem, how they talk about it and how they feel about it and, and what they're saying about it, I think says a lot too. Speaking of um, people that work in the organization, you know, Preston came on ahead of time and um, this is for Preston, but tell Preston that he needs to do more podcasts because the podcasts that you guys do are awesome. And I'll listen to an episode and then I'll be like, oh man, that's it. Like when's the next episode coming out? So tell, tell him to, to do more. I episodes. know he's, I know. Yes. I mean, he's, he's doing amazing he work, but is phenomenal. I yeah. know. I know. And there's so many stories to tell. I tell you what, like we just have so many. Yeah. It's, it's just, you know, capacity. I think that's the challenge with nonprofit work. It's just, we have so much, I, I actually was in a board meeting this past weekend and I was actually mortified because I cried in the board meeting. And the reason I cried in the board meeting was because we had just heard from our regional director in Latin America and he was telling us about what they were doing and we have just a small but mighty team there. And I actually watched a video of a survivor being reunited with her mother. And I, I was, and then we flipped into the conversation around finances, right? And it was just this juxtaposition around what we could do and what we can do. And I think that is, that's a real burden for people in nonprofit work. I mean, in, in any business leaders work, but I think that just, brought me to tears in the middle of the board meeting on Saturday, because I just, we have more podcasts to, to make, you know, we have more, more survivors to rescue. We have more people to train, but we're limited by our capacity. And yet we have to, I know there's an actual miracle in that too, right? Like there's, there's a miracle in the lessons that we're learning in prioritizing, but there is a burden there. That's, that can be heavy sometimes. You guys are doing amazing work. Well, you really, thanks. You really are. Uh, David. Yeah, I, uh, 
Yeah, I, I tell you, it's you know, I, I pray that that there's a miracle and and folks listening to to these podcasts and and there's you know resources generated, awareness awareness created, and I think um, you know I think there's just a you know I, I think things like this while they they seem small, there's there's an impact, and I'm a firm believer that you know you and Matt and everybody in the organization you're not going to realize the true uh, impact of your work. You're not going to realize the true miracles. You're not going to realize the true uh, just pleasure that God takes until you get to heaven. I'm a, I'm a firm believer. And, and so hopefully, you know, that's encouragement to continue to, uh, to crush it. And you guys are literally saving lives. You're, you're changing lives and, and it's, it's beautiful. We love Exodus road. We love you guys. Um, and, and uh you know, I just, I just, uh, I know that what you're doing is blessing others. It's creating miracles for other people's lives. And, and it's just so important. And I'm, I'm so extremely grateful and humbled to, to be a part of your guys' lives and, and, and that you join us today. So thank you. Oh yeah. Thank you so much. We just appreciate all the, all the generosity and all the support you guys have, have shown Exodus Road over the years. We're really grateful. Yeah, well, so we'll put uh, all the links in our show notes. We'll put your website, Traffic Watch Academy, your podcast. Um, anything else that you want to just you know hit on real fast before we before we end today? Yeah, I think uh, I think all of those things are phenomenal. I think if if you want to learn more about the work of the Exodus Road, definitely spend some time on our social media accounts. Spend some time on our website. You're welcome to download my book for free. And I would just say, you know, take a step. You don't have to have the whole answer for how you're going to, as a, a single human being, solve the problem of human trafficking, but that every person on this planet has a responsibility to take a step towards the marginalized. We're all connected. We all belong to each other. Um, so I would encourage whatever that looks like for you to, to take a step towards this issue. Love it. Love it. Well, guys and gals, Hey, check out Exodus road, go, um, you know, Hey, sign up for traffic watch Academy. Like I'm going to do it and I'm going to post my completion, uh, on, on social media, um, you know, it's here, here's the challenge. Everyone listening to this, go sign up for traffic watch Academy, go listen to their podcast, get engaged and let's make a difference. Share this episode, you know, screenshot this, post it on your social medias, tag us, tag Laura. Um, and, um, Hey, let's, you know, one, one little starfish thrown into the sea at a time is going to make a difference. So let's go do it together. And most importantly, go fill your storehouse. I don't know if I don't know if like that's the most important at that's the true. end of an episode. Most like, importantly, fill, but is, if if you, if filling your storehouse includes yeah a giving plan and Good helping call. the marginalized, then most importantly, yeah, fill your storehouse. Thanks for calling. Make it a great day. Thanks. <laughs> hey, thank you so much, Laura. You're awesome. I can't oh, wait to see yeah. you guys again. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Anytime. And I'll send you the link to the landing page for. Um, the the parent resources that'd be awesome that's a great one um, include in in the follow-up awesome thank you so much awesome all right you guys are awesome we'll have a great day all right thanks for listening to filling the storehouse if you enjoyed our show please subscribe and share it with someone you love and if you really felt inspired leave a five-star review so we could continue to grow and help other christian entrepreneurs fill their storehouse If you're interested in creating financial freedom through real estate investing, be sure to check out our website at storehouse310turnkey.com. We'd love to serve you through our platform of building the kingdom. Just click on the contact link and we'll reply to you as soon as we can. Again, thanks so much for listening. Now go for your storehouse and make it a great day.